0: This morning, we're going to begin something a little bit different, because in a couple of weeks, as John mentioned on the back of your bulletin, the announcement about September 18, Finance Committee updates, which we've done in the past, of course. We've we've not done that in a little while, because we made an adjustment to our budget year, uh, switching from a calendar year to summer to summer. But anyway, in a couple of weeks, we're going to give an update on that. That was also given to you in the church newsletter, which you should have received a week ago or so, I hope you 've had a chance to look through that and see and read about the the current and new budget uh, as our church finances take shape and those are important things, but uh, I want for it to be I, I thought it was the timing was right for us for these next few weeks to focus rather uh, on a topic, not on a book of the Bible per se, but on a topic the topic of generosity because As we think about church finances here in a couple of weeks, that's an important matter, but the gospel speaks to us of generosity in much bigger terms than just money. Money is important, but it's just a part of what God calls us to as his sons and daughters in regard to being generous. The gospel calls us to be liberally generous with a lot. In fact, with every part of our lives. It's what it calls us to. And so today, we're going to take a look at the topic of hospitality, because in a, a certain form or or so, hospitality is so important in our culture that it actually is an entire business industry, the hospitality industry, we, we call it. We actually have made it into an industry, but in gospel terms, it takes on a very different sort of shape as The kingdom of God comes, as Jeff prayed moments ago, as the kingdom of God comes upon us and around us and in us. It takes on a very different sort of shape, hospitality does. And I suppose that I could just read one of the apostles' commands in regard to it. Peter wrote in his letter Show hospitality to one another, he said. And do you know what else he said after that? Do it without grumbling. Which is interesting to me, you know, Peter, you know, he must have known something about our nature. Maybe he was just, the preacher always preaches to himself, so I just kind of assumed Peter was probably a grumbler himself, and so he realized he had to say that. But I think it's more instructive, actually, for us to read a story, a story that gives us a picture of some significant element of the idea of gospel hospitality. And Luke 24, which we're going to take a look at on page 6 of your bulletin, is an account of some of the things that took place in the days after the death of Jesus in Jerusalem. This is that that well-known, broadly well-known story of the road to Emmaus. Maybe you're familiar with this story. And here in this story that you have in front of you, we find two disappointed disciples. And we find one resurrected Son of God. And I think along with that, we find a foundation for what it means to be gospel generous. This is Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. And enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As they drew near to the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, and blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would gather with us and join us and speak to us through your word. We pray that you would make our hearts and our minds alive to your word, for your word is certainly alive. The truths of your historical accounts of your gospel redemption among us, is certainly true and real. We pray, Father, that you would make us new because of it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some wise sage you probably have heard explain hospitality with a one-liner. He said, hospitality is making your guests feel like they're at home, even if you wish they really were at home. You heard that, right? I bet you have. And Maybe that's why, why Peter told us to do it without grumbling. I expect that whenever the, the other disciples were in his house, he wished that they were in their own. And maybe that's why he, he revealed his own heart in that, I suppose. He knew that we also would have trouble with such things, that we would struggle to share our time and our space and our things with other people, maybe especially with people we don't even know. But I'd say that one-liner, that that wise sages one-liner, was not really so wise because it's not describing hospitality at all. It's actually describing a begrudging social duty. Now, I I expect that when my home group gathers at my house later today, they probably are going to give me a hard time about that one-liner and and say, do you really want us to be here or not? I do. I I really do. Home group, I, I do want you to come to my house today. Luke 24 is not where you actually would go to learn about such a begrudging social duty because there's no advice here on how to host a dinner party. Although Jesus did have things to say about that, and you know that he did. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But the gospel idea of hospitality is born not out of duty, but out of generosity. After all, the proverb says, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. In other words, generosity is the refreshment of others, knowing that in the act of that grace, blessing will flow in both directions. That's really just how it works, because the giving of generosity comes from the receiving of it, doesn't it? How to be hospitable is not the main point of the road to Emmaus story. So just let me hear you, you you hear me say that. It's not the main point. It's not after you learning how to be hospitable. But the hospitality of the Savior, which is on prime display here, is the reason for any generosity that you or I might have to show. That very day, Luke tells us, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. What day is it? What very day is it? You you could gather that as you read this text, or if you know what comes before, it's the day of the resurrection. That's what day it is when these two are traveling, but for these two disciples, it seems it's it's just the day of the empty tomb. It's a day maybe of confusion and disappointment because they don't seem to have grasped what has happened that morning. They know that the tomb is empty. They don't know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and so it's a day of confusion for them maybe. The Passover week is now finished. It's been a dramatic week that they've experienced there, and now it's the first day of the week The Sabbath has passed, and these two now are evidently returning home, traveling home from Jerusalem from the Passover week. And as they travel, a stranger joins them, and this stranger questions them, and then listens to them, and then he rebukes them, and then he teaches them, and then he becomes their guest. And then he hosts them at their own table. And with the breaking of bread, he makes them to realize that God himself has welcomed the strangers. Jesus enters the scene here as a sojourner, to use the Old Testament and the early New Testament term of things. He enters the scene as a sojourner. And his presence with these two disciples brings to mind certain practices that demonstrate, that demonstrate the nature of God's redemptive work. Okay, so these two, Cleopas is the one's name, the other's name we don't know. Presumably it's his wife that would seem to be a reasonable. Uh, suggestion and these two have been in Jerusalem for the Passover week it was a common custom and the Jews would travel there and then they would go home afterwards and these two were evidently going home and they're walking and they're talking and they're discussing the things that have happened over the past week because they've been remarkable things and and heart crushing things that have happened with Jesus death and as they walk along Jesus himself drew near Luke tells us and went with them But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so he asks them what they're talking about. And they, with that question, receive him into their company. Even with their downcast, sad eyes, they receive him into their company. And and it's evidently a cultural custom of sorts from those days. I'm not sure that we would necessarily do quite the same nowadays, although we should. In Genesis 18, Abraham, maybe you remember the story, Abraham received three men three visitors who came to him one day out of the blue and he allowed them to come into his presence he welcomed them he received them he had them sit down to wash their feet as Abraham's servants came to do that he prepared a meal for them and he waited patiently while they enjoyed this meal he received these strangers as they came in the very next chapter, Genesis 19, Lot, Abraham, Abraham's nephew, does the same thing with the same men when they come to see him. Lot receives them with, with all welcoming hospitality in the same way. It seems that it was a cultural custom, at least, but Job tells us a little more than that. At about the same time, in those ancient days, Job, in, in Job 31, is he's making his... You know, maybe misguided self defense, explaining his own innocence for his circumstances. And Job himself says, he asks these questions. He says, Who is there that has not been filled with my food? To what traveling stranger have I not opened my doors? Job is appealing for his own righteousness. He's he's actually declaring those things to be marks of righteousness before God. And he's not necessarily off base to do so, although his argument was another thing. Apparently, such hospitality was such an important thing, it was an ancient tradition. But later on in the book of Deuteronomy, which you heard some of moments ago, the Lord himself established the practice as being descriptive of the nature of his redemptive work. This is what you heard. Love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And elsewhere in Deuteronomy, the Lord says the same. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And, again, you shall not oppress a sojourner, for you know his heart. Such were you in the land of Egypt. Again and again, the Lord reminds His people and tells him, Such were you in the land of Egypt. Therefore, when you see the sojourner, receive him in and love him because you know his heart. And so Jesus Himself carried that wisdom on into His own teaching. You you know these words He explained to His disciples and those who would listen to Him about the kingdom of God as it came and the proof of its coming in the life of a person. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And those who heard it would say, Lord, when did we do that? And you know what he said, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Proof of the kingdom of God coming in the life of a person. The the practices that demonstrate the nature of God's redemptive work are so ingrained in the history of Scripture that they become actual general gospel wisdom for all believers. Paul would write to the Romans, let your love be genuine, and then he'd explain that, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. And those practices even become specific gospel requirements for all leaders. An elder must be, among many things, hospitable. Now, notice that the word has changed at this point from the Old Testament to the New. In the Old Testament, the Scripture talks about traveling strangers, sojourners that you're to welcome. The New Testament talks about a more technical sort of word, hospitality. Be hospitable. Show hospitality. Seek to show it to one another and to others. But the point is just the same because the Greek word brings it all together. The the Greek word, I don't typically try to throw Greek at you on Sunday morning. I'm no Greek scholar myself, but i got to give you a little bit here. The Greek word hospitality is philozenos. Philozenos. It's made of two words. Philo, phileo, which is a word that American Christians often recognize. It's a popular Greek word for us, isn't it? Eros and agape and phileo, those, those three words for love that the Bible so commonly uses. Eros being a love for one person. The love between a, a husband and wife in marriage. That's what eros is. Agape is a love for all people. It's, it's a broad, open love for all of, of mankind. Phileto, on the other hand, is a love for few. It's a love for friends. It's, it's that, that gathering and group of, of friends that you've given your heart to. Phileo, philosophy is the love of wisdom, Sophia being wisdom. It's, philosophy is a friendship with wisdom. Philanthropy is the love of mankind. Anthropos being man, it's, it's the friendship to all of mankind. That's what we do with philanthropy. And so what does that second part mean? Phila, Xenos. Zenos means Foreigner stranger and so philo Zenos hospitality in the new testament is a kind disposition a devotion to a friendship a love for the foreigner and the stranger after all what's the nature of god's redemptive work it is to reconcile strangers to himself and that's what jesus is having to do with these two disciples on the road to emmaus isn't it as they travel along, he becomes their guest, and quickly you begin to see there arise certain expectations on their part that miss the point of God's redemptive purpose. Okay, so Cleopas, this man on the road to Emmaus, he explains to this traveling stranger, Jesus, about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Obviously, Cleopas and his... Wife, I think, presumably, the two of them evidently recognized that Jesus was no ordinary man. They, they recognized there was something magnificent about this person. He was a remarkable character. And they wanted to believe that this was the Messiah, for sure. They, they explained how the authorities had put him to death. And so Cleopas now puts all his cards on the table. In verse 21, he, he tells this stranger, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Cleopas apparently has concluded that he was not. Evidently, Jesus was not the one to redeem Israel because, well, he died. And what are we to do now? And, and he evidently is not in his tomb anymore, but nobody rises from the dead. And so our expectations were that he'd have to do one or the other, and he didn't do either of them Apparently, and so, he must not be the Messiah. Now, Cleopas, you've got to give him credit for being grounded in the right sort of ideas. He recognized that Jesus was a remarkable person, above and beyond all prophets, as far as he could tell. And he recognized the need for a Messiah. But what is the point of God's redemptive purpose? It's to bring new life to dead souls. So these two disciples' expectations of the Messiah at least it seems, were based on their own assumptions and maybe even misunderstandings. On their own terms, the Messiah had to stay alive. But if the Son of God didn't suffer and die, the redemptive purpose of God would go unfulfilled. Their expectations missed the point. You know, when we think of hospitality, we often think of it in our own terms, and so we miss the point. Scripture requires leaders in the church, elders, and I would say deacons too, by extension, by extension, to be hospitable. Therefore, what does that mean in our American frame of mind? It means they've got to have a house with some entertainment space that's big enough for people to come in. And they've got to have stacks of china that will be acceptable in the culture that they can put food on. And they've got to have a stocked refrigerator with all kinds of options for people to come and enjoy and they certainly have to have a cleaning crew that comes and wipes up the cobwebs and the dust every week so that they're ready for the next opportunity to be hospitable. No. That is simply not what it means. That's what we do in our culture, and I don't mean to, to downcast that. Mary and I enjoy using those sorts of tools to host people in our home. And it's always a pleasure and a blessing to us to do it. Those are good things, but that's not the picture of gospel hospitality. When those are the expectations, then we are either trying to perform for God so that he'll owe us something, or we're trying to impress other people so they'll give us something. That's what we're after when we do that, isn't it? I mean, be honest, that's, that's kind of what we're after. We always have mixed motives with the things that we do. And those are the things that are brewing under the surface for us. There is, after all, a difference between hospitality and entertaining. Entertaining invites people that the host will enjoy having in their home. Now, there's a place for that. Again, I don't mean to tell you don't do that. There's a place for that. It's a part of living in a social world. But in the end, there's some element on some level that is ultimately and inevitably self-serving. It invites people into the home that the hosts themselves are going to enjoy having there and be glad to have there. And they'll get something from it, either enjoyment or reputation perhaps even. But they get something from it that's that's what entertaining is but what is gospel hospitality it welcomes all comers it welcomes anyone who would come with no pretense to impress in other words on some level it's not self-serving it's actually self-giving and so jesus distinguished between the two didn't he In his words to his disciples, his wisdom for dinner parties was this. You you know these things, I expect. He said, when you're invited to a dinner party, don't sit in the most important seat. Why? Because someone more important than you might show up, and the host has to then do that awkward thing of telling you, hey, you need to go to the other end of the table because this person's here now and they're more important than you are. And that would just be really awkward for everybody, wouldn't it? And it'd be very embarrassing for you, and everybody would lose. It just wouldn't work out very well. So don't do that. Instead, sit at the lowest seat, and the host might come to you and say, rise up to this other more important place. That's Jesus' wisdom for a dinner party, because that's how the world plays that game. But his description for gospel hospitality is a little bit different, isn't it? What did he say? He said, When you host a banquet, don't invite people who will pay you back. In other words, don't make it a point to bring in people and surround yourself with them who are going to give you something in return. Instead, give yourself generously. This week I received an email from one of you, a family among you, offering to have next Sunday afternoon's visitors cafe gathering in your home, in their home, this family. And I was not at all surprised to get this email from them because they readily make themselves available, their things, their time, and their resources for the good of others. I was not at all surprised for it. And I responded to them with thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you for that. But I've already made a request of another family for this, and I need to hear back from them first. Can I, can I kind of put you on hold just in case? Sure, you can do that. Well, an hour later, of course, I got an email from the other family saying, of course, you can have the Visitor's Cafe at our house. It's not a problem. That'd be, that'd be great. And, you know, our congregation tends to be that way. We tend to be quick to host and to welcome and to embrace strangers. I, I, I think that we are, even here on Sunday mornings, typically fairly welcoming of all comers. And it's a great, great blessing. But, you know, gospel hospitality doesn't actually require you to have a house or a counter full of food to make it happen. It requires actually something much more difficult because Jesus begins to correct what these two disciples' expectations had missed in verse 25. What does he say? He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, this is one of the most fascinating moments in scripture to me, in all of biblical history. Wouldn't you have loved to be in on this conversation? The road to Emmaus, Luke tells us here, was about seven miles. And archaeologists looking at old ancient cities and all, they kind of peg the only town known as Emmaus in the vicinity as being about three and a half miles, actually, from Jerusalem. So it seems that maybe Luke was talking about the round-trip circuit, a seven-mile trip to go to Jerusalem and back from Emmaus. And so if you think of it in those terms, if you were this morning to leave the theater, and on foot begin to walk west down Northwest Highway. None of you are going to do this, but if you did, you'd go and walk west down Northwest Highway, you'd pass by uh, Central Expressway and North Park Mall, and you'd continue on until you got to Preston Center. That would take you about three and a half miles. It would take you, I guess, uh, anywhere from an hour to two hours, depending on how quickly you walk, and what shoes you're wearing. And if you were wearing ancient sandals like these people probably were, walking over dusty roads full of rocks, it might take you two hours. And imagine the conversation they had over the course of this time as they walked. What an amazing Bible study to have this stranger walking alongside and opening up all that the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament at this time, and what they had to say about the Messiah. Now, it seems that Jesus at this moment wasn't saying to them, do you see Genesis 3.15 where it says about the, the, the seed of the woman striking the serpent and crushing his head? Do you see that? That's me. No, I don't think he was saying that. I think he was pointing to them, them to the, the passages in the scripture that tell them about the Messiah that explain to them his suffering and his death and his resurrection because these were the things they needed to be reminded of. Because gospel hospitality, to truly befriend the stranger, requires generously giving your very self. And that's what he wanted these two to recognize, to see that this is what the, the Messiah had come to do. And so the tables begin to turn here, don't they? The, the tables begin to turn on these two as they travel home. So far, Cleopas and his wife have been really quite hospitable to this stranger on the road, you know, it could be dangerous to travel on the road alone, much less as nightfall came, which apparently it was late in the day. And so, verse 28, as they drew near to the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's getting late. You shouldn't be on the road by yourself. And so he agreed. And once he did, and walked into their home, the tables really began to turn, didn't they? Do you notice what happened there? He sat down to dinner with them, apparently, to their table. And now, suddenly, who's hosting whom? He took the bread, and he blessed it. And he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Now, listen. That's a really presumptuous guest, isn't it? I mean, imagine yourself if, if the house next door to you were for sale and then it, it sold and a new neighbor moved in next door and the week after they moved in, you, trying to be the hospitable neighbor, invited them to come over for dinner and they agreed they came to your house and they gathered in your dining room for dinner and the husband, the father of this family, insisted. He sat down. He didn't even ask you. He just sat down at the head of the table and he picked up the bread, and he gave thanks for it, and he broke it, and he began to pass it around to you and your family, what would you do? It'd feel kind of awkward, wouldn't it? Because that's just not his place. But that is Jesus' place. It is Jesus' place. Because then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Now, he apparently was not the stranger after all, was he? They were. They were the strangers because they'd been kept from recognizing him. They didn't know who they were dealing with here. They just didn't know. And it's hard to tell exactly why. We're told a couple of times here in the passage that they were kept from recognizing him. Maybe it was because of the difference in his resurrection body. Maybe he was resurrected in such a way that he was so marvelous and amazing and impressive that he was no longer the humble appearing servant rabbi and they just didn't know who this was. I I, I don't think that's exactly the case. I think they would have recognized parts of him. Maybe it was simply because they were blinded by their own expectations that were kind of misguided, and maybe there's a part of that, but really it's just that God himself preserved their ignorance until just the right moment, and then he vanished. Go figure that one out. I don't know, but he vanished. He was was gone, and they remembered the burning of their hearts as they had walked down the road, listening to him explain the scriptures to them. And so these two, what'd they do? Don't miss this detail. They got up at that very hour. What hour was it? It was after dinner time. It was getting dark. It was dangerous now to travel on the road, but they weren't even thinking about that. They got up at this very hour and they rushed back to Jerusalem, remembering all the way, There was something about the bread. What was it about the bread? It wasn't really the bread at all. It was the one who was hosting them at their table. They recognized even in their own home, they weren't the hosts. He was. He was the one who welcomed them there. So there are no lessons here to how to host a dinner party. But the point is, God himself is our host. And what do you begin to do with this? How are you to be generous with your own hospitality? What are you to do? I mean, it's going to vary depending on your own gifts and abilities and circumstances. It's going to be different from house to house, from Christian to Christian. There are some things I'd suggest that every Christian should do. You should greet people here in the theater in the morning that you don't know on Sundays. You should do that. Weekly, that should just be a habit. It always should be. It might even be that you greet someone who's never been here before. Often, you know, we're not even a very big congregation, but oftentimes you see people and you don't know if they're a member of the church or not. Sometimes it's hard to really know that. I know that about you, but you don't necessarily know that about each other. Greet them anyway. Welcome them and be hospitable. Give yourself to the stranger. Go meet your neighbors in your neighborhood. That's so rare today, isn't it? But it's so simple, and every Christian should do that. Walk down the street and meet your neighbors. Students, you all have just started school again this past week or two. This is a simple thing for you at school. Meet and greet the new kid at school. Befriend them. Go and and sit with the one who... Doesn't have friends. Go and take a risk and be with the one who might cost you your own status with your own friends. This is what it is to show gospel, generous hospitality to the stranger. So those are things that every Christian should do. There are some things that every Christian could do. This past week, Chris Morrison, you've heard the announcement about the Global Cafe. You saw the 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 handouts on the table out there in the lobby with the bulletins about the Global Cafe on Tuesday evenings, welcoming international students at SMU who want to come and talk to Americans and and meet you and understand your life. Go and do that. Some of you could do that. You you really you really could. You could even mentor a student next door over here at these apartments at behind every door. You could talk to Randy Meyer or Meg Adams about that. They could direct you to the right way to do that and go and and give yourself in some way of your time and your personal space and what you have to someone who is a stranger to you. Those are things that you could do. There are also some things that Christians are called to do, some of them at least. Next Saturday, is it? Again, the Browns are hosting an adoption and fostering gathering for those who are interested to learn. About that, some Christians are called to do that. And it's an amazing and marvelous way to give yourself to the foreigner, as it were, to the stranger, to someone who has otherwise nothing in common with you except that they bear the very image of God himself. These are just simple ways that God calls us and gives us opportunity to give ourselves in hospitality, to love the stranger, to love the foreigner among us, but all of us in our hearts, you know, the first thing that we say as we hear those things is, what? Oh, you know, that'd be great, but I just don't have time. And that may be legitimate to some degree, I understand, I and mean, I'm busy too. I know, I'm right there with you in it. And again, preachers preach to themselves. But you have to remember, you don't have to get it right. You don't have to sweep out all the cobwebs, dust everything, and have everything just right in order to be gospel hospitable. You just have to be generous. You just have to know the heart of a sojourner. And guess what? You do. Because such were you in the land of Egypt yourself. The incarnation, that remarkable gospel miracle of redemptive history, the incarnation itself was the greatest show of hospitality in all of history. It was the sovereign creator "...whose creatures had willfully estranged them from Him, coming near and turning the tables to welcome us." So with the breaking of the bread, may He give us eyes to see, so that receiving from Him, we too might be generous. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, we pray that You would meet us at Your table and that you would host us. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to see your love for us in Jesus and to believe. Enable us, O Lord, we pray, to be hosts, to be gospel hospitable to one another and even more to the stranger among us. And we pray, Father, that as we do these things, that you would be glorified because you have done these things for us in the name of your Son. Amen.